Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Ancient Words for Modern Life, The Ten Commandments. It's based upon the lectionary reading for Sunday, October the 5th, 2014. Last month I read a book by Michael Coogan called The Ten Commandments. Rabbinic tradition says there are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. But as Coogan observes, for Jews and Christians, the Ten Commandments have always enjoyed a privileged status. There are, in fact, three different versions of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, and then again Exodus 34. The first four commandments describe God's relationship with his people, the prohibitions against polytheism and images, the sanctity of God's name, and the Sabbath rest. The last six commands, says Kugan, are general, <clears throat> not too unusual in ancient law codes, and could apply to many diverse societies, parents, murder, adultery, kidnapping, perjury, and property. Despite their privileged status, there's always been significant ambiguity about the role of the Decalogue in our modern lives. It's easy to think of many examples. <clears throat> By one count, there are 4,000 public displays of the Ten Commandments, including, by the way, the Supreme Court itself and the Library of Congress. Sometimes the Supreme Court has allowed the public display of the Ten Commandments while other decisions have barred them. Zeal for the commandments runs high, but so does ignorance. A 2004 Barna poll indicated that 79% of Americans oppose the idea of removing displays of the Ten Commandments from government buildings, even though another survey indicated that fewer than 10% of Americans can identify more than four of the commandments. In the Tenth Commandment, about coveting, Coogan observes that it's assumed that slaves and women are part of a man's property. <clears throat> Neither Jews nor Christians have consistently observed the prohibition against images. The iconoclastic controversy of the 8th and 9th centuries debated the relationship between images and idolatry. Some Christian churches incorporate elaborate images, while other buildings have four whitewashed walls. Luther and Calvin disagreed sharply about the role of the law in the life of a Christian. Their respective catechisms reflect this, but in fact they could both be ambiguous. Luther, Luther emphasized the freedom of a Christian from law but his larger catechism also says that, quote, whoever knows the Ten Commandments perfectly knows the whole of Scripture, end quote. For Calvin, the Ten Commandments played a central role in the life of the Church, and even in broader society. The Heidelberg Catechism of 1563 contains a long exposition of all the Ten Commandments. But then, when it asked whether a Christian might keep these commandments perfectly, the response is refreshing for its candor. Quote, no, 
for even the holiest believer makes only a small beginning in obedience in this life. <clears throat> the enemies of Jesus criticized him for breaking the law. He responded that he didn't come to abolish the least bit of the law, but to fulfill it. In Romans and in Galatians, Paul insists that Christ is the end of the law. This week's epistle to the Philippians emphasizes this point. But also, Paul was quick to add, we do not set aside the law. Despite such ambiguities and complexities, the Ten Commandments are a moral compass that points us towards the true north of human health and wholeness. In neglecting them, we lose our way. In this sense, the Ten Commandments are promises that give life rather than prohibitions that repress. The Ten Commandments aren't moral abstractions, says Chris Hedges. In his book, Losing Moses on the Freeway, The Ten Commandments in America, he writes, there's nothing abstract about the commandments to those who know the sting of their violation or have neglected their call. The commandments save us from false covenants and idols that promise so much and deliver so little. Hedges desacralizes the contemporary idols that we so readily worship, the state, the nation, race, religion, ethnicity, gender, sex, and economic class. The commandment says, says Hedges, frame the most important questions we can ask, like the mystery of good and evil, the meaning of living in community, the nature of integrity, the meaning of fidelity, or the necessity of honesty. In honoring the commandments, we embrace the sanctity of life, the power of love, and their function to bind us together in life-affirming community. The third commandment in particular saves us from our besetting sin of presumption. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord. <clears throat> It's shocking to me how casually and confidently we speak about God. The third commandment evokes the tragic fate of Nadab and Abihu. When they were killed for offering strange fire before the Lord, God responded, By those who come near me, I will be treated as holy. To bestow a name, to use a name, or to know a name, says Coogan, is an expression of control. And so, for example, when Adam and Eve named the animals in Genesis, it expressed their dominion over them. Or when a conquering nation subdues an enemy, they often change their names as a sign of subjugation, as in the book of Daniel. Despite the casual confidence with which we speak, Control or dominion over the name of God is precisely what no person can have, ever. The very thought is blasphemous. Coogan gives two examples. 
When Jacob asked the divine messenger to tell him his name, the response is evasive. Why do you ask my name? Similarly, when Manoah asked the angel of the Lord, what is your name? The reply is similar. Why do you ask my name? It is beyond understanding. These two examples famously echo God's evasive response to Moses, who also asked about God's name. I am who I am. And so Jews honor the mysterious, the inexpressible, and the inviolable name of God by not even pronouncing it. Instead, they substitute the word Adonai, or Lord. Or sometimes you might hear an observant Jew refer to God as Hashem, the name. The third commandment about the name of God warns us not only about our casual presumptions, it reminds us of the limits of our language when we speak about the holy other God. C.S. Lewis captures the practical implications of this in his poem, Footnote to All Prayers. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow when I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, and dream of Fadian fancies, and embrace in heart symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always, taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshipping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unique unquiet thoughts, unless... Thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert our arrows aimed unskillfully beyond desert. And all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. Take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor translate. This isn't the last thing or the only thing we could say about the inexpressible name of the infinite God, but maybe it should be the first. These limitations can be a liberation. I no longer have to pretend that I understand God. The mystery of prayer becomes something to honor rather than to explain. I don't even need to be right. For in his magnetic mercy, as Lewis says, God will our limping metaphor translate. Having honored the third commandment as best we can, we're then prepared for the shocking words of Jesus, that God is not only the infinite other, he's also my intimate Abba. <clears throat> For books this week, I review a title called Invisible, From Obscure to Valuable. It's by Arthur Amon with Barbara McLennan, Eugene Resource Publications, 2014, 112 pages. 
Arthur Amon has spent the last 50 years pondering a simple but profound question. How do we discover the value of a single individual who in our depersonalizing world will likely remain invisible to us? And could it be, in the providential love of God, that all our life experiences prepare us for a single encounter with a special individual? Arthur Amon is the former director of the Pediatric Immunology and Clinical Research Center at the University of California Medical Center in San Francisco. Back in 1982, he documented the first cases of AIDS transmission from mother to infant, and also the first blood transfusion AIDS patients. In 1988, he later founded Global Strategies for HIV Prevention, where today he ministers around the world. With a special focus on women and children, Global Strategies implements international strategies to prevent HIV infection and to work toward a generation free of HIV. All of which is to say that Aman has worked with invisible people all of his adult life. To explore his question, Aman extrapolates some life lessons from the little book of Philemon in the New Testament. It's about a runaway slave named Onesimus, who epitomizes an invisible person. In successive chapters, Amon considers embracing the invisible in various relationships, within friendships, between siblings, within generations, and between spouses. What makes this book sparkle are the autobiographical stories that he shares, like his family struggle with a schizophrenic sister, a taxi ride, a summer job at a Christian camp, or his HIV work in third world countries. When we open our eyes to the person in front of us, the invisible becomes visible and valued. Arthur Amon with Barbara McLennan, Invisible, From Obscure to Valuable. For film this week, we go to Holland in a movie called Maiden Trip, 2013. Laura Decker, born in 1995, was only 14 years old when, after a 10-month court case, she finally set sail on August 21, 2010, in an attempt to be the youngest person ever to sail around the world alone. But it was hardly, as the movie title suggests, her maiden trip. In fact, she was born and raised on a boat for the first five years of her life when her father sailed around the world for seven years. Nonetheless, it was quite an achievement when she landed in the West Indies 519 days and 27,000 nautical miles later and her 38-foot catch named Guppy. She had no follow boat or support crew, and she did all the filming at sea for this documentary about her trip. Unlike some people, she did in fact stop along the way to enjoy the various island lands and people. With the book version of this movie, see the book One Girl, One Dream.
Once again, the title of the movie, Maiden Trip from 2013. And for the fall season, which is soon upon us, we've posted a poem called Creation Praise. It's an early Celtic prayer. I offer thee every wave that ever moved, every heart that ever loved, thee, my Father's well-beloved, dear Lord. Every river dashing, every lightning flashing, like the angel's sword, benedicimus te. I offer thee every cloud that ever swept o'er the skies and broke and wept in rain and with the flowerlet slept, my king. Each communicant praying, every angel staying before thy throne to sing, Adoramus te. I offer thee every flake of virgin snow, every spring of earth below, every joy in human woe, my love. O Lord, in all the glorious self or death victorious, throned in heaven above, glorificamus te. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, October the 5th, 2014. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.